Welcome to Religious Not Spiritual, the podcast where Matt Cook, a disillusioned preacher, reads through the entire Bible. Today in Luke, we see Jesus using his power for the benefit of anybody who wants it. We think about religion's idolatry for theology, and then contemplate the comfort of religious things done for their own sake. And as always, we ask why Christendom tends to always be on the side of the powerful. All right, so we're picking it up in the little bit beginning part of Luke. We've had a great time so far. We have this Jesus fellow who is now like empowered by the Holy Spirit to come and start sending out this message that seems to be about power reversals and the oppressed going free and liberty to the captives. Basically, it's it's like this message that is going to be a path to the kingdom of God or the utopic society or just that way of doing humanity socially and spiritually that works. Verse 14 of chapter 4. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. We're going to find something interesting happening here. Um, the next two sections in this chapter, they seem kind of backwards. But um, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that in a second. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's great. Jesus chooses a passage that's really in line with what I've been feeling about Luke so far, right? Uh, this thing from Isaiah talking about this one day where we'll figure out how to do society properly, you know, and there will be good news for the poor and there will be sight for the blind. There, we'll, 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 we'll nail this thing, right? And it's especially timely, you know, always, because there always seems to be these societal structures that we go on that cause oppression. I'm recording this right now during the whole uh, coronavirus uh, lockdown thing. And, and one thing that this whole pandemic is showing us how injustice is built into our economic structures, right? Because we're having all these essential businesses close. So then all the essential workers are all probably the lower wage earners anyway. And they're the ones going out and they're having to uh, bear the brunt of the risk of this whole pandemic situation, while the people who have a lot of capital are able to very easily isolate themselves. My family, my in-laws uh, live in Pakistan, and they're trying to do social isolation there, but it's really, really, really hard. A lot of their neighbors and friends are day laborers. It's, it's showing right now that there is oppression built into the system, that it seems to be built into the system. And so when Jesus shows up, and Jesus is showing up in a very different cultural and economic context, but still an oppressive one, Right, because this is first century Judea, taken over by the Roman Empire, and 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 of course this is you know Jesus is like forty years before everything kind of hits the fan and Titus destroys Jerusalem, right? So this is really time. This is like a crisis moment 
um, in history in this area, kind of like what we're having right now. And in, in a way, he's presenting people uh, with this option. We could just change, change how we do things, right? And, and, and of course, his system gets outlined more and more as Luke's uh, account continues. The old evangelical preacher in me always wants to look at a text, whether it's the Bible or anything, and ask, well, how can we apply this to our lives, right? And, and it makes me think, especially during this time, it is important for us to always be looking at the society that we make up, that we are a part of, and to ask where are the places where the system targets people who are vulnerable, who are the people who suffer when the system succeeds, and who are the people who succeed. One way, one way that uh, is very useful in trying to determine, because a lot of this also has to do with internal biases, and Jesus is going to run up against that in just a second, and he's going to get in a lot of trouble for it, because the people he's talking to are only going to half accept his message, right? The idea of a great society is good, but then he goes you know, into the nitty-gritty of how we do that, and they get really, really mad because they don't realize they have these biases inside. Now, we all have these biases. And one way to really figure out how can I find out where my prejudices lie is to kind of find the place where my imaginative sympathy ends. You know, we hear these stories around, right? And I mean, we're on Facebook and Twitter all the time, right? And we're hearing these different narratives popping up, uh, especially in, related, uh, in relation to the coronavirus thing. And, and it's interesting where people are putting their sympathies. And I suppose one way, one way to, to kind of determine to what level I am kind of enthralled by whatever system I'm in is to think about how many times in conversations I am in the position of defending those who have power. That's an interesting thing. In, in the conversations that I have, whether it's in person or online, how often do I defend the powerful? How often do I blame the vulnerable? In whatever narratives are coming up, right? Because there's lots of stuff going on right now, so much that it kind of boggles my mind and I don't even want to dig into it. So, so who do we side with when there's a fight? Anyway, let's go forward. So, so he reads this passage from Isaiah, which is one of those wonderful utopic passages that hints at that glorious, glorious kingdom. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, so that line there, he began to say to them, that's like he expounded it. He preached it. He preached something, right? So we're actually skipping the main content of his message right now, right? But we have their reaction. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? It's going really, really well right now. These people are like, and it's his hometown too. This is really, really great. So Jesus um, decides to ruin it. Check this out. Verse 23. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Let's pause for a sec. What did he do in Capernaum? He's never been to Capernaum. Actually, in the very next section, we see Jesus in Capernaum doing lots and lots of wild stuff. So since, you know, ancient writers didn't care so much about chronology of things, things don't necessarily go in the order they happened. Different uh, compilers and writers, you know, had different goals and priorities in ordering their 
material. So the very next section seems to be the section that comes chronologically right before this, but we'll get to that. And then he said, this is where it's really going to hit the fan, and then he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And if you remember your Bible stories, that was when God, you know, caused a famine. Elijah was running away from King Ahab, and he uh, got into the house of a widow who had like, you know, that little bit of oil and that little bit of flour. And he's like, you'll make me a cake. And the woman's like, no, man, I'm making me and my son a cake so you can eat and then die. And Elijah's like, no, 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 make me a cake first. So he, she makes him a cake, and he eats it. And then there's enough oil and flour for another cake for her and the kid. And then they wake up the next morning, hey, there's still more oil left for them all. And so for the next three and a half years or so, they just kind of live off of that one thing of oil and flour. Um, but she's in Sidon. She, she wasn't a child of Israel, right? Like, 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 so she, she's a foreigner, right, outside the covenant. And he continues, And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. It's a similar situation. Uh, uh, Naaman is this big, he's, he's not just a Syrian, he's actually the general of the Syrian army. He's like the enemy. And, and it's his slave girl who says, hey, there's a, there's a prophet in Israel, you should go talk to him and you won't be a leper anymore. And so Elisha heals this guy, right? Now, 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 now check out their reaction, this is awesome. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all of the synagogue was filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Whoa, whoa. That, they were just saying, wow, this is Joseph's son. He's got such gracious words. And they're like, throw him off a cliff. Why? Because he's pushing against their imaginative sympathies, right? Because he's including in his vision of this utopic environment two people who, who are outside of their society, right? People who are not accepted. So he's, he's accepting them. That's what he's doing. And that's why all the wrath is coming towards them, which actually makes me think of the current state of uh, religious discourse today. You kind of notice whenever society is ready to um, enlarge the circle of acceptance, that it is the religious institutions who want to bring it back and, and shrink it again. All these times when people are trying to be accepted and affirmed as is, it seems to be the religious people, maybe I shouldn't say people, maybe it's the systems that's making them say it, but, I, I'm, but it seems to be the religious systems that are always trying to constrict it. And one thing that I really do love about the entire Christian gospel arc is that its capstone is identifying the most marginalized and hated and cursed person imaginable, which is typified by the kind of person you hang on a cross at the side roads, and making that person God, right? Because, because in this scheme, and, and, and we're not scandalized enough by these stories, and I think that's why it's very, very easy to shut people out and to uh, uh, oppress people who are different from us, because we're not scandalized by the fact that the one hanging from the tree is the most important. And I mean, in Matthew, it gets even more explicit with that idea 
of the radical kindness and inclusion to everybody, especially if they're different and even hostile towards you. But that scandalous, radical message is like just, you know, it just seems like every generation gets slowly filtered out more and more until we have this very weird age today where if there's going to be an argument between the powerful and the marginalized, you can bet dollars to donuts that the Christendom will be on the side of the powerful. And that's gross. Anyway, they're trying to toss him off a cliff. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. There's a scene in the old Jesus film. I think it's like from the 70s, 79, 77. I don't know. Um, but you should watch it. It's great. And I remember this scene very clearly because there's this angry mob pushing him towards the friggin' brow of the hill. And then suddenly they all stop. And Jesus like gives him the stink eye and walks, just walks right out. Can't throw me down a cliff, man. Verse 31 and on, I think, uh, actually take place before the incident we just had because now he's at Capernaum. Okay, so this is a flashback. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. That, hold on to that phrase, his word possessed authority. Watch. For they were astonished at his teaching. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of the man. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. The evangelicals talk a lot about demon stuff. Not a lot, but, I mean, people who believe the Bible literally, they have to believe in demons, right? So, so what most of the world would call maybe mental health issues, um, there's always a second option in the evangelical scheme of things. It could be demonic possession. And on the mission field, that sort of schema is intensified, right? Because not only are demons real in the world, but now we're in deepest, darkest Pakistan or wherever where, you know, Satan's fortress dwells. So missionaries coming into these places kind of expect a demonic warfare of some kind. And then when you have people living there who also um, believe in spirits, it comes together in a weird way. So I have witnessed moments where in, in the whole scheme of everybody involved, there are people who are oppressed by demons and there are people who are uh, casting them out. And I've seen this happen. It's much like it's described here uh, with with talking and, and, and falling. And, and then a lot of people will say, okay, so then when we read these parts in the Bible, what we're really talking about is mental illness, and, 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 and that's all probably true. But I want to kind of approach this more literarily. Here's why. Jesus' word, it says it has power, right? And then we have this person who has an unclean spirit. Now, what, is, what, is that, what does that mean literarily? I think it means the, un, the unclean spirit here is going to represent general oppression, right? Because the man with the unclean spirit has no agency. He can't do anything on his own. He can't even speak on his own. His words are not his, right? Jesus's words, just that review, get out of him, have power, and the oppression ends, and the man falls down without being hurt, right? So if I'm, to, if I'm going to approach this literarily, this is, this is what I'm taking from it. This message, which still, which still hasn't really been fully ex uh, explicated yet, but this message has the power to undo oppression. That's, that's what this means. And, and oppression is, in Luke so far, the number one thing that needs to be undone, right? Hill's got to get low, valley's got to get up, uh, the rich can go away hungry, 
and the boar, whew, we got food. So, that, so that's how I'm approaching that. But, you know, the demonic possession angle is, is very interesting. I can remember a few times where, um, especially when we were at the church in, in Pakistan during the holidays, quite a few people from the faraway villages who wouldn't normally be able to afford to come every week would come uh, specifically so that they could get special prayer from the pastors. Sometimes uh, they would, you know, give them holy water to take home with them. I know that a lot of religious leaders in all over the world uh, abused abused that idea, right? You, that you can actually get a material thing from a religious leader that will cure you or he, alleviate your life in some way. And a lot, probably most, I don't know, I don't want to say most, but probably a lot of religious le- leaders use that as a means of gain. Just like, you know, it says in the, the one of the epistles, you know, a lot of people think that godliness is a means of great gain, meaning religion is a great way to make money. I was fortunate that the, the man I was living with, my father-in-law, who, who has since passed away, his, his, his faith was unfeigned. He, 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 was a man, he was a man who believed that God had changed his life and turned him into a compassionate person. And his life actually bore witness to that testimony. Um, and so when people would come to him for items, first he would discourage that. But then if they pressed him, he would just bless it and give it to them. And it makes me wonder, sometimes, sometimes when we do a ritual thing, or when we put importance on a word or a object or a person, it can be good. For example, every single night, my daughter makes me read from the Book of Common Prayer. I don't think she has any beliefs about the supernatural. She doesn't have uh, uh, what you would call a relationship with religion, really at all, except, you know, that I seem to talk about it all the time. But she really, really likes going through this book. It puts her into a nice, calm state at night. And I love reading it, too. It's a glorious-sounding book. So, So when it comes to the very spiritual aspects of religion... Like those things that you do just because it apparently gives you spiritual power, those things are actually some of the most spiritually powerful things. And that's one of the reasons why I still do this podcast. Um, I just like the opportunity to sit and read the Bible and talk about it just because, for its own self. Verse 36, And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? This word. What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So here we go. It's begun. This is where it's really begun. And we're in Capernaum, right? This is still before he went to his uh, home synagogue in Nazareth and got rejected. So here he's done. And this is his first miracle in Luke right? Uh, in another book, uh, his first miracle is making water into wine. In another book, his first miracle is turning clay birds into living birds. Not in the Bible, but... Uh, and in Luke, his first miracle is casting out a demon with a word, centering on the word, the power of his word. So his first miracle is a spiritual one. It's one where we wouldn't relate to very well today, because this isn't how we categorize uh, And he rose, and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Simon's the guy who's going to become Peter later. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. So that's interesting. That's a jump. He rebukes the demon, it leaves. Okay, fine, this sage has spiritual power. He rebukes the fever, it leaves. Whoa, this sage has... What? what? What would you call this? This is something more down to earth. This is visceral. This is physical power. And, and even this add-on. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So it's a, it's a little bit funny, but, you know, he's, he's, she's got a fever. No more fever. Good. Make me a sandwich. But it is interesting to see this jump from the spiritual to the physical. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had 
any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Now word's got out. There's a healer here. And since everybody knows somebody who's sick, everybody's crowding Simon's house. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I love that phrase, every one of them. It reinforces the problem that's going to happen in Nazareth, right? Because Jesus is like, I don't care who it is. We're going to do this together. We're going to lay our hands on everyone. We're going to use our social power to cast out everybody's disease and oppression. And that's it. And the demons came out of him crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Because the demons are trying to distract right? The demons are trying to distract. Look at what they call him. You're the Holy One of God. You can destroy Jesus of Nazareth. They're trying to set up some theological frameworks that people are going to be able to get distracted with. Because I'll tell you, one of the biggest idolatries in Christianity is the idolatry of theology. People absolutely worship their theological schemas. And they say that they don't, except you can prove that they do. Here's why. If you're not in their theological framework, you're serving a false god. Well, doesn't that mean that your theological framework is what God is? You'll notice, you'll notice, Jesus does not. Jesus does not come close to a highly developed, intricate theology. Paul did that. I don't like his part of the Bible much. All right, we're near the end of the chapter. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Sounds like it was an all-nighter then. It must be, I mean, healing everybody in town. He went out to a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Did it do 